Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got special treat because we have author professor and author professor whose book is now the newly minted Next Gen Indie Book Award finalist, Ethan Galogli with us. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Esther. Very happy to be here. We're excited to have you. First of all, congrats on Next Gen Indie Book Award finalist-ism, state of being. <laughs> Thanks, Esther. That was no small surprise and really exciting for me. I don't know what to say, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, it is exciting. We're going to talk about the book that has that, but before we even get to that, let's do a little bit of an origin story of why did you even decide to write a book? How did you get to this Next Gen Indie Book Award finalist state? So my book is The Trail. It's a novel set on the John Muir Trail in California, which, if your listeners are are not aware, is a 211-mile trail across the rooftop of the Sierra, a good portion of it above 10,000 feet. So it's a pretty serious backpacking trail. And I've been a backpacker for years, I mean, for 30-some-odd years, and I'd hiked parts of it. But I had never done what's called a through-hike, a hike of the entire John Muir Trail in one go. And one of the amazing things about this trail is you can hike it without touching a road. So you can be completely isolated from civilization for 20 to 30 days. And that's what I did. And at the end of that hike, I was so blown away by just how beautiful it was, how amazing it was, just the entire experience, the people I'd met, everything about it, even though I had 30 years of backpacking, I felt, wow, there's stuff here. And as a professor, I had talked to the people in at the university. We had set up a lecture where I was going to tell the students about my experience in this trail. And of course, as a professor, I started researching the history. I started reading everything I could about the background of the trail and all this. And I had known nothing when I was on the trail, but I found out all these amazing stories about the people who helped create this trail and the early explorers of the Sierra and all that. So I had this lecture set and it got canceled. We got some other speaker and they took the slot and i was sitting there going well what am i going to do i've got all this great material it's an amazing bit of information and i had written another book before and i said you know this would make a great book people would be really interested in this but not as a history story i mean that's going to be pretty esoteric but as a novel if i had a compelling story and I wove the history in, I wove the background, I wove my own backpacking experience. I think this would be a great story. And so that's what I did. And I spent five years working on this project. It was not easy to learn how to write in novel form and developing characters and all that. But you can see the fruit of the labor. I just got this award and Kirkus raved about it. And it's been doing quite well up on Amazon and so forth. It's been an Amazon bestseller off and on. So yeah, it's it's exciting, but it, it was no easy project. And then just to focus on that a little bit, when it was, okay, now I'm not actually going to write nonfiction. I'm going to write fiction that's going to have some nonfiction in it. But you have to start going back to craft books. You started contacting people of like, great, how do I do this? Or how did you even approach trying to write the novel? So <laughs> ignorant as I was, I figured, well, I've written a nonfiction book. How hard could fiction be? After all, I can bend the truth a little in fiction, but I don't like bending truth. So I started out writing a story and I set it on the Muir Trail and I finished it. And I was all proud of it after a year. And I thought, this is great. I've done it. I've written a novel. And I sent it to five 
very trusted readers who figured I'll get some feedback from, they're going to love it, and they all hated it. They, <laughs> they told me I had written a wonderful travel guide to the John Muir Trail with a very thin story and, and not much of an interest grabber. You know, I mean, first draft. The, this book went through nine, nine and a half drafts. I learned something there. I learned, okay, I've got the background. I've got the history down and I've got the scenery down. The scenery is all really accurate. You could hike the trail carrying this book and each vista, each scene. I've actually hiked it again since and double check, but it was the story that really surprised me just how difficult it is to write a compelling story. And the characters were not who they are now. They were uh, much thinner and not well-developed in the relationship between you know, the, the two characters. There's an older professor of Asian studies from Berkeley who's, who's dying of cancer, and this is his last chance to hike the trail. And a younger guy, overweight, doesn't want to be there at all, but kind of compelled to hike it through the fact that the older guy was his father's best friend and he wants to understand more. His father's passed away more about his father. So it's a very unlikely pairing, but they were nothing like this when I first wrote the story. So it took nine revisions and lots of editing and lots of feedback to go from a travel guide to a novel where people are saying, yeah, I, I couldn't put this down. Well, how did you settle on these kind of characters? Because you could say, oh, he's, he's a professor and you're a professor, but it, it's not that simple to just say, I'll make a professor in a story. The two characters evolved organically. The professor is a very natural character for me. East Asian studies is not too difficult for me to do. I lived in China for a number of years. I'm fluent in, in Mandarin. I used to read poetry and philosophy and Chinese history. So it was pretty easy for me to draw on those interests for Sid's character, the older guy. For the younger guy, he's just a brash young guy. And I just drew on a lot of my own experiences and buddies of mine growing up. It's not a hard character to generate. So the characters weren't that tough. They're both reflections of different aspects of my life with some colorful additions, I suppose. The difficult part was getting the dialogue, getting the story, the narrative, the pacing, the drama, that kind of thing, and then just the details. It's kind of like building a house. You set up the foundation, and that's sort of the outline and where you want to go with the story and all that, and then you do the framing. And the framing is, okay, day by day, what's going to happen? What's the progression of the story? But then you've got to do the interior design, right? you got to put up the walls and put in the furniture and the details, and that's where it gets done. Each pass through the story, each of those nine revisions, I was working on one specific thing. Come revision eight or whatever, I think I was working on non-visual details, things like crunching leaves and the smell of the wood and the sound of the wind and just these little details. Another analogy I've heard used is like a Monet painting where you just keep adding the dots until you get an entire picture. And that, for me, very much is what the process was like. It was layer by layer by layer until my readers said to me, hey, you've got something here. And I think to any aspiring author out there, you've got to be open to passing it to readers. You don't want to pass it to your best friend. You want to give your book to someone critical 
who's going to give you honest feedback, and then you don't want to get defensive. I learned in, in my nonfiction book how much editing goes on in a book. I don't think I was quite prepared for as much as I needed in a novel, but I, I did expect it. And the more honest feedback you can get and the better you listen to it, the better your book's going to be. Was there a moment after you got your first round of feedback that was discouraging or is it just, all right, let's fix this, something's up, I better get this right sort of thing? Well, of course, when you're hoping that everyone's going to love your baby and yeah. <laughs> they tell you this is awful and in <laughs> polite terms, there is disappointment. You yeah. go through that, oh my, what's wrong with it? I'm so surprised. But knowing the people, I know they had my best interest at heart. And I took a good look at the book and I, I realized, okay, if they're saying this, I could make it better. And I think my mantra through this process was, even though this is a long book and every time I went to do an edit, we were looking at months of work, three, four months of solid day by day work. Writing a book takes years. I don't know where the image came from of people sitting at a desk and typing out a novel and it's published the next day. I'm sure it happens, but that would be the one out of a million exception. I think for most authors, it's years of editing and revision and, and all that. Maybe a year at the best for some fast publisher who cranks stuff out quickly, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time. And my mantra was, Every time I do a revision in this book, I'm becoming a better writer. And so it was almost like the samurai practicing his art, the martial artist who has to suffer and get knocked down in order to get better. And that's kind of how I saw it was every time I do this, I'm becoming a better writer. Yes, so true. Was there a point or did you kind of know from the outset, you have this idea of want to show this beautiful place with everyone. But your story, even though you have the beautiful part, you have the camaraderie kind of, the different people you meet along the way on the trail and all that sort of stuff, but it, essentially it's kind of like a self-discovery sort of story, like a dig within yourself and be honest about yourself kind of story. And that's both of your, they're kind of both protagonists. Both protagonists kind of end up at that point. Very much so. Was there a point that you realized that's the story I'm writing? Or when you finally got it and you got your characters and you wrote it, you're like, wait a second. I didn't know it, but that's exactly kind of what I wanted it to be. That's a great question. It was a mix. It was very much an organic mix of both. I had an outline in my head, and I, I don't want to give the full story trajectory, but let's say this. I had what I wanted to happen with Sid, the older character, who's secondary, actually. I had that all planned out pretty much from the beginning. It's the younger guy, Gil, whose story evolved more organically and changed through the process. What's interesting is a lot of it wrote itself. I don't know if you've had moments like this, but you're sitting at the typewriter, or in my case, the computer, the blank page, and you start writing what's happening. You get lost in it, and a couple hours later, you come up for air and you realize, oh my God, I never thought of this, but this is great. A lot of the very passionate moments between these two protagonists and directions the story took, they were organic. They just came as I let the characters interact on the page. A lot of that stuff was not planned. But the overall trajectory for the older character, I had that in mind from the start. Oh, very good. You mentioned that I did get a copy of the audiobook to listen to. 
And I don't always listen to audiobooks, but it was done very well. What we could say about the story, I think, I don't think it's a spoiler because if you look at the book, you'll see the chapters are like this. One thing you do have is the breakdown is, is by day, right? Each chapter, day one, day two, you know, etc. Yes, it's written almost in a journal style, day by day. You didn't see this in the audiobook, but the print book has illustrated day by day maps of the terrain that they're going over each day. And it actually has some sketches of things they encounter on trail. I was very fortunate to work with a couple of good artists on this book. Oh, well. Well, okay, sidetrack. Why did you decide to include that? Was that kind of, you felt it very necessary or eventually you're like, you know what, I should probably include some sketches. It's not necessary, actually. I I have a lot of people who read the book in draft form who never saw the sketches and the maps and followed along just fine and who are not big map readers. But... I'm the other way. I love a map. I grew up with those 1800s books like Treasure Island where there was the map in the front and the picture of Long John Silver. And I would just stare at those and fantasize about Skull Island and where would I go and where would I hide on this thing? And I love those illustrated books. They seem to have vanished. Almost no books are illustrated anymore, except for children's books, because of cost, I think. And I really wanted to have that 1800s feel of, here are some sketches of the things in the book. There's a very unique bridge that there's a sketch of out in the wilderness. There's this rock monster they encounter, which is this huge boulder that people have decorated with teeth and things. And the Muir Hut. I wanted sketches of these iconic places because they're just so unique and words do justice to them but i had this guy from england jeremy ashcroft who's a mountain illustrator do these black and white drawings of those and do the daily maps and i think for people who love maps and illustrations like myself this just brings you back to your childhood pouring over those maps in the books there have been a number of people who've written me One distant cousin, in fact, who were inspired to hike the trail through this book. And I think for someone like that, they can look at the map and start planning and start thinking about it and just visualize what they're going to be doing. So I think it helps a lot in many ways. And I don't know if you're like me, but I just I love seeing illustrations in books. There's something old fashioned and just nice about that. Yeah, I'm thinking of all the classics that they have. But they do it for kids, how they always add the illustrations there. True, they don't do that necessarily for adults. Unless it's a graphic novel. That's when they'll have the right. illustrations. Right, but they used to. If you think back to Jules Verne and the 1800s, adult novels used to contain illustrations. And they've just stopped. Sometimes mm. they contain little bits of artwork or just neat in-the-margin doodles. And it's gone. Now everything's computer-generated and flat. So I wanted a little of that classic feel to it. And if you flip through this book, you see that. It it has a look and feel that I don't think a lot of books have anymore. Like an old guidebook, kind of. Absolutely. Going back to the original question, of course, it makes a lot of sense to have the structure by day. But any of it ended up being challenging? They were like, wait a second, I got to undo the structure? Did it end up being having the structure like that? Was able to keep your story focused? That actually helped me quite a bit when I was talking about the house framing analogy. Having a day-by-day structure was very good. And it's funny because the day-by-day structure they hike in was exactly the day-by-day structure I did on my first John Muir trail hike. So their schedule, where they stop, the campsites they use, everything was actually exactly the itinerary of my first 
JMT through high with one tiny exception that I moved for dramatic purposes. It wouldn't have worked otherwise. When I went to write it, that framework was very natural because, of course, those were the same descriptions and places and so forth. Now, to your question, when the story came in to the original quote-unquote guidebook format that people got on me for, at first, I found it difficult to fill all those days. There were times I was thinking, well, I should chop some stuff out. But as I learned more about the craft of story writing and how to develop characters, and the characters kind of took over, they filled that space to the point where it would have been way too long a book. But where if I had a couple more days, I could have developed a few of these themes even more. But I think it's just about right. I think the pacing and the distance they're going and the framework is just about right. One reader comment that he really appreciated the day-by-day frame because it takes place over about 28 days. And in those 28 days, Gil in particular undergoes huge transformation. I mean, he starts out as a fairly unlikable, brash young guy and he slowly, slowly, through Sid's tutelage, becomes aware of his issues and and starts to change. And what that reader had said to me was, look, if this had been a 15-day trip or a 10-day trip, I don't think I would have believed somebody could undergo that much change. But over 28 days, it felt very organic, very realistic. So I think it helped in quite a few ways. Yeah, that's good. Is that kind of what you're saying also that before you really understood character development, it would be, for example, day 11. Well, we hiked from here to here. It's like, well, that's not a chapter. So now all of a sudden day 11 has to become more than that. Yeah, it was something like that. I should go back now and pull out my early draft and look at it. I I think I'd be horrified. But yeah, I got really into describing what they were hiking. So that filled the time. But for a reader, reader's going to be bored in five minutes reading that stuff. So I, I think most of the first draft were these long narrations of the terrain, which as the drafts went forward, there were two things I had to chop. I had to chop a lot of day-by-day drudgery, sort of the terrain they're walking over, and just put in the highlights where the reader's going to be like, wow, that sounds like a gorgeous lake. And I had to chop out, and this really pained me, but I had to chop out about half the history I had written because the history part, it's fascinating, the old explorers and so forth, but it has to integrate into the story. You have to keep momentum going. And I had a lot of editors say, okay, this section is dragging, this section is dragging. And so I either had to do a quick, here's what happened, summary, or just dump part of it. And I figure I've got enough history now that a history buff would go, and I've got references in the back, would go and look up the actual articles and stories of these explorers and get the full picture. And a person who's not a history buff will have just enough to get the background and be interested without putting it down. I had one reviewer who wrote, it's a history book, but it's not boring like other history books. <laughs> oh, it's kind of funny. That's a you big know, compliment. Um, it is, although I, the way they expressed it was pretty funny to me. They got it. You saw in listening to it just how much background and history is kind of woven into the story. Yeah. Did you not have a thought to do some sort of big chunk of historical information kind of at the back? Or then you were like, no, 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 let's not get carried away. We have the story and it's good. We don't need to start adding well, too much back matter. I have a timeline at the back. So if somebody wants to get 
all the dates and all the major events, there's a timeline. When did John Muir do this? When did Theodore Solomons or LeConte do this or that? A person who is interested in that can use that timeline as a jumping off to go and do research. And then I put a list of recommended reading and and so forth, where, again, a person who's interested could follow up on that. So there are some appendices back there, including one for beginners who who might want to go and hike the John Muir Trail. But I didn't want it to be too post-heavy. This is a novel. It's not a textbook. That's not what I was going for. Right. Yosemite didn't just become Yosemite. Someone had to make a trail. It's even just so simple and technical, but how many times do you think about these things, especially if you're not going on the actual trail? Not often. Right. And so a little bit of the history of Yosemite is in this book. That was John Muir basically petitioning for it to become a national park. And eventually Stephen Mather and Roosevelt was involved later. The broad outlines of that are in the book. And I actually had quite a bit more about the history of Yosemite and the original Native Americans who were there and were displaced and all that stuff. And that was one of those sections I loved, but the book isn't a history of Yosemite. It's got the John Muir Trail as its focus. And my editors rightfully said, this needs to go. And so I have a quick summary, I think, where Sid says something like, you should read something about blah, blah, blah. And he spouts off a sentence about it, and that was it. A little bit about Muir and petitioning for the national park and so forth, and a little bit about Mather later. But there are some amazing books out there on the history of Yosemite, and I would point a reader to any one of them for the full story. Yeah, well, also from the technical aspect of things, once you wrote the book, okay, now I finally have a novel, and it's good, etc. What did you do next in the steps for publishing? Do you try to send it out to other places where you're like, I'm just going to keep creative control of this and self-publish it? What were you thinking that also led to the final decision of getting it out? So, as you know, from the Indie Award, it's an indie book. I had sought out traditional representation for it, and I had quite a bit of interest and feedback on this. The problem kept coming down to the fact that it's a novel, but it's nonfiction. They had a very hard time with the fact that it's got all this history in it. It's set on a real setting, that the Muir Trail is as real as it can get in the story. And yet it's a novel. And I think in the publishing industry right now, and I, I don't want to discourage anyone, but nonfiction, nonfiction is what they are looking for. It's what makes the most money for them. It's what really seems to be the best in terms of marketing. And so you may notice a lot more nonfiction, particularly for new authors coming out than fiction. I think fiction tends to be more established authors. Rowling and and Stephen King was excellent. And folks like that pumping out well-established genres. But new authors in the fiction and literary fiction, and in my case, a crossover between nonfiction and fiction is difficult. And then the book is a little bit over 100,000 words. And this is another big problem. Publishers really, as a rule, from a new author 
don't want to take on a project that's over 100,000 words because it's more cost for them for editing, more cost for all the production and everything, and less profit because every page you print costs money. So from a practical standpoint, 100,000, about 80 to 100,000 words is the magic number the industry is looking for. And when you go over that, you've got to have some phenomenal luck to get someone to pick up, particularly a work of fiction. If you're an expert in nonfiction, that's different. But for fiction, very challenging. So I got great feedback from representatives and agents all telling me this. Some of the feedback said, well, if you cut it down to under 100,000, we'll reconsider it. And I went and I hired an editor. Actually, the first editor I ended up hiring for this project. My job to her was take this book and chop out enough that we'll get it down to 100,000 words. And she's like, sure, no problem. Read the book, came back and said, nope, this Mm. book is the length it needs to be. We can chop out some of it, but this book will suffer greatly in its story and the scope if it were shorter. So it got to the point where I said, you know, there's an audience for this. And it sold very well. Once I got it out there, I knew there were a lot of people into the outdoors, in the hiking, armchair explorers, people in the history, people who are just thinking about the Muir Trail or who have done it before. Maybe they hike the Appalachian Trail. They're into this stuff. Outdoors, hiking, and so forth. It's a huge, huge market. And I think this is something that representatives, agents agents were missing. From my understanding, a lot of them, I don't want to disparage them, but a lot of them are sitting in New York City offices with these suits and the air conditioning, and they're just not necessarily these outdoor enthusiasts. They may be book enthusiasts, which is great, but I didn't get a sense that a lot of them were really into hiking in the outdoors when I was fortunate enough to correspond with them. Apparently, they don't even answer quite a few of their letters. Yep. So I just said, okay, let's look at the economics of self-publishing, of going indie. I spoke to some other indie authors I was fortunate enough to know, got some phenomenal advice from some of them. I would have made some terrible mistakes without that. And... I went indie and it's been doing very well. It's bestseller off and on on Amazon. It's making money, so that's good. And it's getting out there and it's getting awards and people are aware of it. I don't think it's quite got the audience it would have if I had a publisher behind it, pumping it out to the bookstores like they do. But I think it's growing organically. I'm watching the numbers. It's in bookstores and so forth. But Amazon is particularly good for this because they give you metrics. I'm watching the sales month by month creep up. So I know it's getting a wider and wider audience. I'm pleased with that. But I think when you go indie, you have to expect a much longer growth curve for a book than you would get if a publisher put the kind of money in necessary to have it in the window at at every bookstore. Well, you can also be with a publisher who's going to do everything for you, but if they don't decide you're the book for the book window, then you're not going to be the book in the book window. So I've heard that too, and that's yeah. really sad. Again, I, I don't want to come down on anyone, but I think if a publisher signs a book deal and they want your book, they should be doing 110% of the effort to get that book out there. I've heard stories like that where they published it and then they did no promotion, nothing, and, and the book just died. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, and also the unfortunate truth is there's only so much space in the window 
window. So someone makes the decision. I don't know if it's the right decision or not the decision, but someone made the decision. I don't know. Talk to enough authors now that I've seen and heard everything. And, and yeah, you write a book because you love writing. That story about the person who writes the bestseller and all. I mean, yeah, they exist, but most books will never go there. And I think the important thing is you love what you're doing. And that's the way this book was for me. I could not get the trail out of my head. I could not get the JMT experience out of my head. I really wanted to share what I'd learned and experienced. And so this was a project of passion. If this had never sold a copy, I would have been thrilled with the process of learning to write this book and getting what I wanted to get onto paper. That in itself would have been its own reward. Yeah, that's good. And then just to quickly, that you did end up as this book award finalist. You started looking into contests and you had to submit to them or how did that come about? Aside from the actual quality of the book, you decided, hey, let's just see what happens. There are a number of big contests every year for books. Most listeners are probably familiar with, for example, the Booker Prize, the Nobel Prize. You know, there are some really big ones out there. And unfortunately, quite a few of these are closed to indie authors. It's a funny market out there, but you'd think with books, it would be a level playing field. But no, you have to be from a big publishing house to submit to some of these awards. They kind of keep it closed like a network. If you're an indie, there's fewer avenues open to you, but one of the big awards every year is the Next Gen Indie Awards, and there are a couple of others, and I submitted it to a few of the Choice Awards. I submitted it also to Reader's Choice, and it did quite well there. Also got an award through them, and to Kirkus, who really loved it. You know, that's a review company, but there aren't that many awards for indie books. And so Next Gen Indie was very exciting for me because that's kind of the big thing for indie books. Did you know in advance that, uh, oh, by the way, we're announcing the picks tomorrow and you're going to be on it? Or is it just everyone check tomorrow and then you'll see? So they give you a date that the awards are going to be announced. And then on that date or a couple of days earlier... I think everyone got an email that said, hey, we had such a large submission this year. It's going to be another month or so. And so you're just sitting there wondering and life goes on. And I was at the L.A. Festival of Books and some other exciting things. And then we got the emails and I looked and they don't even tell you directly. You scroll through the list. You're like, wait, there I am. And they start sending you the awards and and all this. pretty cool and another funny thing was i had actually moved before i got the award and i hadn't set up the forwarding address and so i think i got an announcement in the mail before i got that email i think i got some stickers and some medals and i wasn't aware of it until i saw the email and then (laughs) they came in the mail i was in a bad position that way because you know i changed addresses as well oh well whoopsies no Uh, it's fine it was a great surprise yeah it is exciting Because even though you're so sure that your work is good, it's just, when it's there, it's just like, oh my God, it actually happened. Wait, whoa. Yeah, it kind of got on the back burner with the move and everything. I was checking it, but not as regularly as I had at the beginning. It's kind of funny. But yeah, these things, they're all exciting. They're all interesting. You know, everything I've read and everyone I've talked to said, ultimately with books, it's word of mouth. Somebody likes your book. 
they read it or listen to it, they tell a friend, they listen to it, and slowly, slowly it grows in awareness. And even for the books they put in the window of the bookstore, if the book is no good, it dies. But if people like it, that is a catalyst for expansion and more sales. But ultimately, it's readers who determine it, not the companies. Yeah, it's like a rabbit in the hair sort of thing. You could have mm-hmm. a fast start and versus slow and steady. Yeah. That would be a message I'd want to give to anyone who's going the indie route is you absolutely have to be prepared for slow and steady. You have to continually put your book into contests, advertise your book. I can't stress advertising. Advertising, there's no way anyone's going to hear about your book if you're not getting the word out. And over time, if you have a good book, you will know because you'll see the sales start to creep up. And that'll tell you, yes, people like your book. You'll get the positive reviews back, but it's a very slow process. And I think there's this illusion out there that you put your book up on, hate to keep using Amazon, but let's say bookshop.org. You put your book up on bookshop.org, Everyone in the universe discovers it and you're a bestseller and it does not happen that way. Yeah. That's also sometimes writers have to learn how to tell people they wrote a book because no one's going to know if you don't say it. Me especially. You'll meet people, I'll meet my neighbors in in this new community and the last thing I want to do is sound like an advertisement (laughs) saying, hey, by the way, I've got this book. I think writers as a whole, well, I can't say as a whole, I think most writers are shy. There are some extroverted writers. I, I think some of the business writers and so forth are probably pretty extroverted. The marketers and so forth. But I think a lot of the novelists like myself, we tend to be more introspective and less self-promotional. But yeah, you're right, Esther. Absolutely. You got to go out and bang that drum. You've got to tell people. And it's a challenge. There's a local bookstore downtown and I have yet to get up and walk in and introduce myself (laughs) and say, hey, I'm an author of this book. Would you like me to do a reading? And I'm going to. But it's funny. It's like dating when you meet that special person and you're nervous to ask them out. It's a little like that with marketing, I think. Well, it's actually funny that, well, not funny, but saying that because a lot of writers are introspective, that kind of lends well to writing because a lot of really good stories, you want to have that introspection to develop deeper characters. Quick follow-up, you said something about advertising. So you bought ads on any, either Amazon, Facebook, I don't know, you tried any of those ads and that's how you started? I, I, I haven't tried Facebook. I do have to go up on Instagram at some point. That's a more used platform. Facebook is starting to become like the tumbleweeds of the abandoned ghost town is my experience there. If I could figure out how to market this on TikTok, I would. But yeah, book talks. You know, it's not quite a fit for TikTok. Amazon's where I've done most of my advertising. I've done some on BookBub and some other scattered platforms. I'm a member of the Independent Book Publishers Association, IBPA, which if you're a new author out there and you're going indie, is a wonderful organization. Very supportive and they get you a lot of discounts on different things. They have a lot of catalogs they send out. Uh, Most recently, I'm in the library journal in an IBPA advertisement. So you just have to look for these opportunities. I was at the LA Festival of Books. You just have to look for them as an author. But you also have to weigh what does this cost? If you're going indie, there's a pretty good investment cost of creating this product and putting it out there. And 
you have to weigh that against, well, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money each book. So it's got to do well. And you could be looking at years before you get back your investment. Right. Well, slow and steady. Just to ask one more thing quickly before we do our wrap up. And this is a totally random question, but you have this whole thing with Gil and these smashed lasagna, bad food stuff that he's eating. <laughs> Yep. Is, is this based on experience or is that kind of something you just threw in for the humor of it? Oh, no, it's very much based on experience. So just for your listeners, this is a running gag in the book. There's a lot of humor in this book. And Gil packs all the wrong meals. He's got these freeze-dried backcountry buffet. I had to come up with a not real name for these meals. And unfortunately, it packs all the same flavor. And nowadays, you can get some pretty good instant meals for backpacking. There are some good ones, some all-organic ones and so forth. But there are also some really, really awful ones. Back in the 80s, when I started hiking, if you pulled out one of these packet meals, people would laugh at you. I mean, it was a joke just how disgusting and, and <laughs> chemical tasting these things were. And of course, I have Gil pick the cheapest on sale one at REI and pack all the same flavors by mistake. And so he gets out there in the woods and everybody's saying to him, wait, backcountry buffet? They still make that? Oh my God. And he's stuck with it for a month. And so as the book progresses, he He's just getting less and less happy with it. And it is real in a way. It's funny you asked me that, Esther. Nobody's asked me that. Oh, yeah. But the first, <laughs> no, the, the first time I hiked the John Muir Trail, I didn't have instant packaged food, but I had brought cheese noodles. And usually on a backpacking trip of three to five days, I love cheese noodles. But on the Muir Trail, I had cheese noodles yeah. for 28 <laughs> days. You know, those instant Safeway kind of noodles. I'll tell you, by day 18 or so, I was so sick of cheese noodles. Oh, I, I started dreaming about food and just anything but cheese noodles. And so that experience never left me. I've significantly improved my through hiking food since then, including dehydrating my own meals now. Oh. But I certainly was putting that in with Gil. I wanted Gil's character to have that exact experience. And so it's a very funny part of the story is his suffering through his meals and his other mistakes. Gil makes a ton of mistakes going in that a beginner would make, but most beginners are not setting out to hike something as ambitious as the JMT. I wouldn't suggest any novice go on a trail like this. Poor Gil, he suffers through a lot of things. And in that first day on trail, there is a lot of humor, but I, I don't want to spoil it. Right. Well, that's also, so just to say very quickly, the part with the spring onions, there was a second that I was like, am I still in the same book? When you get the, I guess you could say the gag of the meals, you understand how that fits into yep, things. Yep. So, yeah. There's so much more to ask, but we're going to, we're going to wrap up now. We always have a fill in the blank to wrap up with, and this can be for anything. Choosing one, I really like it when anything kind of story related. So it can be writers, editors, publishers, agents, book covers, books, stories, whatever. I really like it when one of these do X and I really don't like one of these do X. How would you fill in the blank for that? For me, I just keep watching Amazon and every time it's a bestseller, I'm excited. So I really like it when the sales get up into the bestseller category. That tells me things are working and, and I really like it when I get a good review. And this is something else a listener should understand. If you read a book and you really like it, please, please leave a review because authors definitely read these. I can't say 100%. Maybe Stephen King isn't reading your review, but I know that 
that smaller publications like mine, we read them all and we want to see them. So I love it when people leave reviews. And what don't I like? I guess I don't like when somebody leaves a negative review without comments. I've had a couple of people leave three-star reviews and give their reasons for it, and that's fine. When I see that and I say, okay, well, that's why they didn't like it. This person didn't like the fact that there are some mature themes in the book, or I used some swear words and that put them off. I get that. But what I don't like is when somebody has a review and then they just don't say why, and, and you're just sitting there wondering, why did that person dislike this? Why didn't they express themselves? So I think that's very frustrating yeah it's also not helpful to other readers because i'm looking at it's just like not good and you're like but why i want to know their rationale and the rationale may be extremely helpful like the person who said well this book has too many swear words in it that may help another reader who's very sensitive to that not purchase the book and i'm glad i don't want to offend anyone so if that helps steer somebody away and steer them towards a more appropriate work for them sure that's helpful yes very true love the positive reviews yeah yes of course there have been some that just warmed my heart where i'm just sitting there like god i wish i knew who this was i'd send them a thank you note there was one guy who wrote just an amazing review and he contacted me through my author's webpage, and i ended up sending him a signed book plate for his book i just i loved what he had written oh that's nice very good well ethan thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today thank you for having me Esther. i really appreciate it it's been a thrill to be here and get to talk a little bit about the whole process this was a bonus episode of oh my work podcast featuring author ethan Galoglu. to find out more about ethan and his work please visit the link in the episode notes. find out more about oh my work podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to boss on instagram at oh my work podcast please check us out at el music is by tim burke Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.